Thanks, Dave. Good morning, everyone. Great to see everybody. Uh, please keep your Bibles open as we uh, continue on in our series here in the Book of Acts, as we are moving well through it now. Uh, let me pray as we come to look at the passage together this morning. Great God, we thank you for your uh, great love of us that has gone to extraordinary lengths to make your love known and your salvation in Christ known. We pray that this morning as we uh, reflect on this part of your word, as the, as the word of God spread throughout all the regions of both uh, you know, Jerusalem and Judea and into the rest of the world, we pray, Lord God, that we would see uh, that you continue to do your work amongst us today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Well, the question, uh, who is Jesus, is not a harmless question. Uh, it might sound harmless enough, but how you answer that question will actually determine your destiny. It's a question that has been asked throughout the centuries, of course, uh, and there are always a variety of answers that people uh, might give. Uh, some might say, well, he's just a man, like anybody else, a, a nobody. Uh, some might point out that he was a carpenter in the family business. Uh, some say that he was a bit of a, a religious nutter, maybe some call him a great teacher, but he's one of those guys that went too far and got himself in trouble. But many claim that he is God, son of God. And if you, I guess, surveyed every household on Wild Street, you'd probably come across all those answers and perhaps even more. But my guess is that no matter what answers people came up with, for most people, Jesus will have very little impact on their lives at all. Now, at the beginning of Acts chapter 18, the Apostle Paul has left Athens and he's come to Corinth. Uh, the Gospel has now reached Greece. It's around 50 AD. Uh, and Christianity is spreading well into the non-Jewish world of Greek-speaking paganism. And Paul and his companions are preaching about Jesus. And look at what they're teaching about him. Now, we didn't read from here... Back to 18, chapter 18, verse 5, you can cast your eyes back. It says, he says, When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. What they're teaching about Jesus is that he is the Christ. Now, I'm sure you know it's a title, not a name. Uh, it means the anointed one, the Messiah. And of course, the Messiah was the king that God had promised to send into our world to rule over his eternal kingdom. And so to call him the Christ is to call him the crowned one, uh, the king. And, and notice in verse 4, Paul is trying to persuade, that's verse 4 of chapter 18, trying to persuade both Jews and Greeks that this is who Jesus is. And then we've just heard Dave read for us very helpfully over in verse 28, Apollos, notice, is doing exactly the same thing declaring that Jesus is the Christ. Now, Paul wants us to be sure and clear about who the genuine Jesus is. Because if you get Jesus wrong, it will have eternal consequences. And if we're not careful, we can be taken in by things that aren't the genuine article. Now, in Acts chapter 19, we come across three things that aren't the genuine article over against those that are. Now, three things, I think, uh, genuine Christians, genuine apostles, and the genuine God. If you've got an outline there, you'll see that it's on your outline. Well, chapter 18, verse 23, where our passage begins today, is what is called uh, is the beginning of what is called Paul's third missionary journey. 
Uh, after spending a bit of time back at his home church in Antioch, uh, Paul and his team set out again, and in verse 23 we read, they went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all of the disciples. Now, Paul is not just a church planter, he's also a church builder. As he heads back through the places where he's already been and declared the gospel and now goes to strengthen them, but we'll see more of that next week. Now, eventually he um, arrives in Ephesus. His last journey is a bit unique because uh, Ephesus is the only new place that he goes to, and it's quite an extended ministry around three years. It's a key incident as uh, Paul's last major place of new mission work, but it's also quite a sad incident. Uh, This is the last time that Paul is operating as a free man. Uh, He's soon to be arrested, put on trial, sent to Rome to face Caesar's court, where he is put under house arrest. Now that is where Acts is heading. But today, Luke has recorded three examples here of genuine Christianity during Paul's time in Ephesus. Uh, Chapter 19, I think, is actually very helpful uh, because it actually shows us Christianity as it interacts with both Judaism uh, but also with other Gentile religions. Now this uh, first incident in chapter 19, verses 1 to 7, is an interesting little encounter of Paul's as he goes to Ephesus. He arrives there, he comes across these disciples. Uh, Later on, we're told that they're actually John the Baptist's disciples. Don't be confused by the term disciple here because disciple just means student or follower. It doesn't mean Christian. These disciples, Paul meant, weren't Christian. They were disciples of John. Uh, And John has come up uh, a few times in Acts already. Uh, He's an important character in God's plan of salvation as the forerunner to Jesus. But John was Jewish, and his followers, all of his followers were Jewish. And these guys had obviously come in contact with John's preaching at some point. They'd received John's baptism, but they'd missed the sequel. Uh, For some reason, they had missed the events of Jesus following John's ministry, and the gospel hadn't actually reached them. Now, no doubt they were waiting for the Messiah to come, but they hadn't realized that he had already come. Now, that's where they differ from Apollos at the end of chapter 18. We meet Apollos in Paul's letters more significantly, but he makes a little cameo appearance here in verses 24 to 28. Uh, Luke tells us that he'd only received the baptism of John, like these other guys. The difference is he had already come to faith in Christ as well. And so verse 25 actually says that he was fervent in the spirit and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Now, it seems at this stage that he was a fairly new believer, and so Priscilla and Aquila get beside him uh, and explain to him the way of God more accurately. Verse 26, we see it there. Now, if I can just make a little aside comment here, it's a great little model of Christian ministry, isn't it? I mean, here's a couple of Christians who are a little further on down the track in their faith, and they get beside a young Christian, and they explain to him the way of God more accurately. They don't deride him when he gets it wrong. They disciple him. There's possibly nothing more powerful and perhaps fruitful than a more mature Christian getting alongside another Christian to open the word of God to explain it further and to pray together. You know, I'm ever so grateful, a little bit like Dave said earlier on, to the guy who did that for me. It was such a significant part of my Christian growth. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, had the privilege of being instructed in the Bible faithfully, then it's a great thing to do. And I think um, that 
short steps for long games that Dave talked to us about earlier is a great way to get a, be a part of that. It may be the most significant ministry you ever do. Anyway, I digress, and so the point is here that I want to make really is that Apostle is a Christian. Uh, he'd come to faith in Christ. These other 12 men hadn't, and they were living in a kind of time warp, awaiting for the Messiah to come still. And so John the Baptist's ministry was consistent with Christianity. But Jesus supersedes John's ministry. And so as Paul explains to them about Jesus, they put their trust in him. Uh, they're baptised into Jesus' name and receive the Holy Spirit with visible signs that serve to highlight the fact that there is only one true gospel. Receiving the Holy Spirit always comes with repentance and faith in Christ Jesus. And so repentance alone, which came with John's baptism, is never enough. Genuine Christianity always requires repentance, turning back to God and trust in the Lord Jesus. But there's another important issue of genuineness here, that's, and that is the accreditation of Paul as an apostle. Uh, if he's the one who is supposedly preaching genuine Christianity, then we want to know that it's coming from a genuine apostle. Now that's what Luke, the author of Acts, seems to be concerned with in this next section. Uh, after this, uh, unique, his unique beginning to his ministry in Ephesus, Paul reverts to his kind of normal course of action where he enters into a new city he goes to the synagogue. For three months, he tries to reason and persuade them about the kingdom of God. Some believe, some don't, as has become the pattern. Now, when he's opposed, look at halfway down verse 9 there. He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, Paul may not be able to preach in the synagogue, but that does not stop him preaching. In fact, here he hires a public hall, the Hall of Tyrannus. I think you can see it on the screen there. I believe that's the ruins of the Hall of Tyrannus where Paul preached. And the word of God is unstoppable. God is using this man to get his message out and to save people. Now, incidentally, it shows us, doesn't it, that, verse, that uh, Christianity doesn't need church buildings as helpful as they are. The word of God can't be contained. We need to keep that in mind as we seek new ways to reach out with the gospel. But the point, of course, is that the word of the Lord is spreading, and it's through Paul that God is doing that work. Now, one of the reasons for this uh, relentless spread of the gospel is in what we read next in verses 11 to 17. Now, uh, we've already read it. Let me read it to you again. Verse 11, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognised, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord, was, oh Lord Jesus was extolled. Now this uh, little event here gives us another window into the kind of circumstances that early Christianity had to face. Uh, a bunch of Jewish exorcists 
impressed by what they see Paul doing, uh, try to use the name of Jesus, a bit like a magic spell, to try and cast out an evil spirit. But they're frauds. They're not the genuine article. And they're exposed. It, It clearly wasn't sufficient to just be Jewish and use the name of Jesus. Being Jewish, being religious or spiritual, even if you acknowledge Jesus, is not sufficient to be acknowledged by God. Jesus' name is not a magic formula that we can throw around to get things from God. The key issue is one of belief. And there's no point using the name of Jesus unless you believe in him, unless you trust him absolutely. That's what marks out the person that God acknowledges, the person that God listens to. But don't let me uh, confuse you here either. I don't mean that if you believe absolutely in Jesus, that then you can use his name to do miracles. I mean, if you think that way, you're still thinking like a magician. And just like the Apostle Peter said to Simon, the magician, back in chapter 8 of Acts, verse 21, he says this, I think it's there on the screen, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. I mean, the miracles we see done here by the hands of Paul might look a little like magic. But notice verses 11 and 12. It says that God did extraordinary miracles. See, Luke is showing us that God has vindicated Paul as his messenger of good news. In the same way that he vindicated both Jesus and the Jerusalem apostles. Paul is a genuine apostle in the line of both Jesus and the Twelve. And so signs and wonders are are an important part of apostolic ministry, of God vindicating his chosen messengers. And we need to take notice of Paul, just as we do the other apostles, just as we do Jesus. They have the authority of God to speak on his behalf. And the things that Paul did were extraordinary. We are simply ordinary Christians. God may, God may still do extraordinary miracles in our day. He's not hamstrung by us in any way. But what he wants us to do is to be obedient hearers of the apostles' words as they're recorded for us in the New Testament. See, that's the way the name of Jesus will be extolled. Well, that brings us to the, uh, the final event that Luke... Uh, records of Paul's time in Ephesus, he tells us that a serious riot breaks out. Again, we're getting a bit of an indication of the kind of impact that early Christianity had on the different cultures it encountered. Uh, Christianity was getting under the skin of paganism uh, and particularly under the skin of some idol builders here in Ephesus. Uh, Let me just pick it up there from verse 23 of chapter 19. But about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, 
and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. The gospel of Jesus had come to Ephesus and it was starting to have an impact. Uh, These craftsmen were starting to lose money because people were becoming Christians. Now, Artemis was an earlier name for the Roman goddess Diana. Uh, I think you can see a picture of her there. Uh, Her temple was huge, four times larger than the Parthenon and one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. If the goddess Artemis is discredited, so will their great temple and religion and way of life. So will their industry. And there goes their livelihood and reputation. And so at the instigation of this silversmith named Demetrius, a great crowd is is whipped into a frenzy. They grab a couple of Christian scapegoats, uh, Gaius and Aristarchus. Uh, They rush into the big public theatre, crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The whole city is an absolute uproar. Uh, But we're told in verse 32 that most of them didn't even know why they were there. See, Paul wants to address the crowd, but some of the officials won't let him. It's not safe. Uh, Eventually, a a Jew named Alexander comes forward to make a defense, but they don't want to listen to him. And we're told in verse 34 that for two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. For two hours. Why? Well, perhaps it was because they had nothing more to say. Um, But in the end, the the riot is quelled by what appears at first to be the calm voice of reason of the town clerk. Now, in one sense, he was right. However, he also seems to be a little bit naive. He assumes that the Christian criticism of idolatry has no great significance. But Demetrius, the silversmith, seems to have a better grip of reality here. Uh, See what he's realised in verse 26? Let me see, verse 26. That not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Now, it's ironic, really. Uh, These guys get the significance of Paul's preaching, but they still don't get it. Uh, If anyone should have realised that gods made with hands are no gods, it should have been them. As they stood there day after day, fashioning their wood and their metals into one god after another after another, for people to buy and carry carefully home and then bow down and worship. We get an idea here of the uh, amazing place of paganism in these first century cities. But if you preach that Jesus is Lord, it begins to undermine the whole culture of a place, a social economic, political change has always come about by the faithful preaching of the gospel. Paul wasn't chanting a mindless defense of his God. Because the gospel is true, he spoke boldly. He sought to reason and persuade people of its truth. And he wasn't operating in secrecy, trying to undermine society deceptively, which is the essence of magic and sorcery. The message of Jesus is public. It's open. People are welcome to check it out for themselves, to test it. And it allows people the opportunity to change their mind, to repent. And a great many people who heard the gospel did repent. They recognised that the great goddess, Artemis, was no god at all. That only Jesus is the true God, the genuine God. And so to claim, as Paul did, 
that Jesus is the only true God is quite a claim, isn't it? But it's a claim that requires a response, a genuine response. I can actually think of four possible responses that people make. Some reject him. For whatever reason, they just decide they don't want a bar of him to turn against him. Uh, Some don't know who he is because they've never looked at the evidence. Uh, Some know Jesus. They have a real belief in Jesus as the Lord of the universe. And there are others, fourthly, some know that he is true and yet live as though he isn't. Now the question is, what is the genuine response? Now in one sense, of course, they're actually all genuine responses, aren't they? But if the claim is true that Jesus is the Christ, what should our response be? Now I want to quickly pick up on two that come out from this passage. The first response is repentance and faith. And then the second is take action. Now, perhaps you haven't yet made up your mind about Jesus. Uh, Perhaps you're unsure about him. Perhaps you need more information or more time. Perhaps you haven't really taken time to look at the evidence yet. Or perhaps it's just that you don't really know how to respond to Jesus. If you need more time or more information, then that is absolutely fine. But don't just let the time pass. Speak to someone, get the help, the information that you might need. But for those who want to know, then it's a twofold response. First, you need to repent. You need to turn away from your unbelief and your other gods, those things, whatever it is that you live for that keep you from following Jesus. And second, you need to put your trust in Jesus as the one true and genuine ruler of God's eternal kingdom. Now, on on one hand, you can do that at any time, anywhere. You can turn back to God and put your trust in Jesus. It's very easy. But it would be good to talk to someone about it so they can support you and pray for you in it. Now, that's a genuine response. And let me make it clear that that is is all that any person needs, needs to do to enter the kingdom of God. There's nothing else required for complete forgiveness and God's full and unconditional acceptance of you. However, this next response is the result of our new allegiance to the true and living God. Now, our way of thinking and living changes because we have a new allegiance. In other words, if you know something is true, then you take action, you act in accordance with what you believe to be true. Real belief leads to real change. Now, there's a great picture of it here in Ephesus, isn't there? Uh, In chapter 18, verse 18, or chapter 19, verse 18, sorry, um, let me read to you. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. That is millions of dollars in our day. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And the amazing thing about this event is that those who did, uh, those who did this incredible thing uh, by burning all their, their books and magic arts, they're not new Christians. The original text makes it clear that they had already been Christians before this time. But with this growing awareness of Jesus' lordship over all things, including his power over all that is evil, then these believers take radical action to further conform their lives to his lordship. As their belief grows, 
So does their devotion. Now, I think this should be encouraging to us as Christians who at times continue to struggle with sin. It can sometimes take time for the gospel to strip away some things in our lives that are inconsistent with our allegiance to Jesus. But we must allow the Lord to keep growing in us because it's only as our belief grows, as our knowledge of what pleases God grows, that we'll know what action to take. These believers confess and divulge their practices. It costs them in terms of exposure and economically. But when you know it's true, you take action. What have you got in your closet that needs confessing? What do you need to lay before God and repent of? What do you need to rid yourself of, to burn, so to speak, that is stopping you from fully giving Jesus your full allegiance? See, today is the day to take action. But just before I finish, I want to say that it's even bigger than what we may or may not need to confess as individual Christians. The preaching of the gospel actually radically changes cultures. The Ephesians weren't just rejecting their false gods and old beliefs. They were also rejecting the old culture. The values of our culture are challenged by the coming of Christ. So we no longer live by our culture's values. Instead, we seek to live by our Lord's values. We turn away from our culture where it's inconsistent with our allegiance to Jesus. See, our culture is no longer our guiding force. How do you reckon we're doing with that as Christians today? Are we so steeped in our culture that we're allowing it to shape us too much? What should my aims be, for example, when I go to work, when I raise my family, when I school my kids, when I engage in sport, when I join a church? What are my Lord's aims for me when I take part in these and other areas of life? We're not to submit to our culture. We're to submit our culture and its ways to the rule of Jesus. And when you ask the question, who is Jesus, it's not a harmless question. How you answer it determines your destiny. And if you believe that Jesus is God, then you must act accordingly. Our response to who Jesus is has consequences. It's not like answering the question, what colour is grass? It doesn't really matter what colour you think grass is. It has very little impact on your life. However, if someone makes a statement, there's a gas leak, and it kind of, if that's true, it requires a different kind of response, doesn't it? Just as if someone makes the statement that Jesus is the ruler of the universe, if that's true, both those two statements are life-changing statements. They are truths that affect the way we live. And so when we truly understand and believe that Jesus, the Christ, is Lord, then the genuine response is to give up what the world sees as important and to live for him. Well, friends, we are going to spend the next few moments together just being able to reflect on what God has said to us in his word today. The musos are going to come and help us as we sing a song, O great God of highest heaven. If we can sing that word, that, 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 that song with those words and believe it, it requires a response from us, doesn't it? So let's do that as we sing together.